have you ever heard of the phrase, the, the binary trap? Um, it's a pretty clever phrase when you think about it, really. Uh, it, it expresses the idea that we shouldn't get trapped into thinking that there are only two choices available to us. Uh, third parties are especially interested in this idea when elections roll around, aren't they? Um, the, the reason the phrase binary trap is so clever is because in the very nature of the phrase, it, it, it aims to almost intuitively to diminish a person's affections for what may very well be the, the two most obvious choices. Uh, who wants to be trapped, right? I mean, no one wants to feel boxed in and bound. We like the idea of freedom. And, and we especially uh, want it, we want freedom to be a constituent part of all of our decision making. To be sure, there are times when we uh, do not face binary decisions. We're not always faced with a, a yes-no decision, a right-wrong decision, or as a friend says, a right-left decision. Uh, sometimes more options truly are available to us. So the, the notion of a binary trap is, is, is not altogether wrong-headed. It can actually be useful to be aware that not all decisions are binary. Here's the rub. Some decisions are binary. Uh, there are times when we really are confronted with a binary decision. And that decision could be immensely significant. This morning, in Deuteronomy chapters 29 and 30, Moses confronts the people of Israel with a binary decision before them. They can be loyal or disloyal to God and His covenant. They can be obedient or disobedient to God. That's the choice before them. And Moses even presents the choice to Israel while informing them of the consequences of their decision. Should they choose obedience, they will enjoy long life in the land. Should they choose disobedience, then they will face God's curse and death. And this was not just some decision that Israel was to make on the plains of Moab in 1400 BC. This is the choice that we make today. Will we choose to love the Lord Jesus and so choose life? Or will we choose disobedience and so choose death? This is the choice that God's Word sets before us this morning. And there is no third choice. There is no choice to punt or to kick the can down the road. So what will you choose? Who will you choose? Well, so that we may make a well-informed choice, let's choose to open our Bibles and hear from God's Word. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 29, if you haven't done so already. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there, I think you should be able to find the passage on page 171. And I think it'll help you to follow along. While you're turning there, uh, let's just remember uh, the context of our study. Deuteronomy, it's the fifth book of the Bible. And Moses, uh, it's his final book in what's commonly called the Pentateuch. If you've read the first four books of the Pentateuch, then you know the interesting journey that the people of Israel have traveled. The, the Bible, of course, begins with God creating the world and all that is in it, creating the first man and the first woman. They're set in this beautiful garden, a paradise, really. And they're given a law or a command. And sadly, they break that law. They're sentenced to death. They choose disobedience. And yet, though they've chosen death, and sentenced to death, they are given hope. Though, as God promises that, that one day He will send a son to rescue sinners from eternal death. 
And this true story grows from there. It grows with God calling Abraham and entering into a covenant with him, promising to make of him a great nation and to give that nation a land that is very garden-like. That nation, though, finds itself enslaved in Egypt. But God wondrously rescues them from slavery. And after saving Abraham's children, now called the nation of Israel, God gives them what He gave to Adam and Eve. He gave them a law. He gave them a command. And as uh, He also gave them a covenant, as we see in Exodus chapters 19-24. to But sadly, just like Adam and Eve, they rebel against God's law. The people of Israel rebel against God's law. And they make an idol. They make a golden calf. And as a result, many are punished by death. And the Pentateuch, it it rolls on, and God continues to give His people laws. Shortly after the priests are consecrated, two of them, Nadab and Abihu, they disobey God's laws. And as a result, they're punished by death. And this pattern continues in the book of Numbers. God gives His people a command to enter into this garden land. And they say, no, we won't go. And at that, God punishes Israel's disobedience by death in the wilderness over a 40-year period of time. That entire generation who rebelled against God dies in the wilderness. And this leads us to the book of Deuteronomy. This book is a series of sermons given by Moses in the plains of Moab. The people of Israel are right on the edge of the promised land. And they are getting ready to take that land that God has given them, that garden land. And in this sermon series, Moses is reminding the people of Israel of the covenant relationship that they have with Yahweh. And he is calling them to heartfelt obedience. Don't choose like Adam and Eve. Don't choose like your parents. Choose obedience. Choose God. This is what Moses is proclaiming. He's saying God loves you. And you ought to love Him. This is the message of Deuteronomy chapters 29 and 30 is simple. Disobedience brings death, but love leads to life. Therefore, love the Lord your God and display your love by keeping His commands. This message is communicated through four movements, which we're going to look at uh, under four headings. These are the four points that are going to form the outline of the rest of this sermon. Number one, God's great faithfulness. We see God's great faithfulness in verses 1 to 15. We see our great danger in the verses, in the, the remaining verses of chapter 29. Uh, and then we see God's great mercy in the first 15 verses of chapter 30. And finally, we see our great choice in the last few verses of chapter 30. Let's begin by looking at God's great faithfulness. So follow along as I read from Deuteronomy chapter 29. Let me read verses 1 to 8 for now. Deuteronomy 29 verses 1 to 8. And see if you can see God's great faithfulness in these verses. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab. Besides the covenant he made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread and you have not drunk wine or strong drink that you may know 
that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Sion, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us to battle. But we defeated them. We took their land and gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, to the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites. I wonder if the opening words of chapter 29 sound familiar to you. They should. They're the very first words that open the book of Deuteronomy itself. These are the words, are the first four words of Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 1. And with Deuteronomy 29, verse 1, we are being reminded that the people of Israel are standing on the plains of Moab, and they're being called to enter into covenant with Yahweh. They're being called to enter into covenant with God. Forty years before, the people of Israel had been called to covenant with Yahweh at Horeb, which Horeb is just another name for Mount Sinai. You can read about that covenant in Exodus chapter 19 to 24. This, what we're looking at here in Deuteronomy, is not really a different covenant. For the same laws that were enumerated in Exodus have been really enumerated here in Deuteronomy. Moses has simply applied them in different ways. What is different is that Moses is impressing upon this generation before him that God's covenant with his people is their covenant to keep. Remember, these Israelites weren't those taking on that covenant at Sinai. It was their parents and their grandparents. But their parents and grandparents died for their disobedience. And so, continuing his purposes, God, through Moses, says to the people of Israel, this is your covenant to keep. You need to keep this covenant. Now, a covenant, as we've mentioned a few times in our study here in Deuteronomy, a covenant is an agreement between parties to keep promises. It's an agreement between parties to keep promises. A covenant, it, it defines and describes the relationship between two parties. In this Mosaic covenant, one party, God, gives stipulations... The other party, Israel, keeps them. It's a bit of a simplistic definition, but it's basically right. This covenant, which is really the sum and substance of the whole of Deuteronomy, expresses how Israel is to relate to God. God gives out the law, and Israel is to live out the law. So why, why go back and recount Israel's history, as we see here in verses 1 to 15? Why remind Israel of God's faithfulness to redeem them from slavery in Egypt? Why remind Israel of God's faithfulness to lead them through the wilderness for 40 years? Why remind Israel of God's faithfulness to miraculously feed them and clothe them for 40 years? Why remind Israel of God's faithfulness to protect them from fearful kings like Sion and Og? Moses reminds Israel of God's great faithfulness to call them on to great faithfulness to God. That's why we have that therefore you see in verse 9. God has been faithful to you, verse 9. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. See, what we're seeing here is God has been faithful to you, and you, Israel, should be faithful to Him. God's faithfulness also stretches on into the future. Verses 10 to 13 announce all who are part of this covenant relationship. Those who are bound to keep this covenant. Who is, who is called to be faithful to this covenant? Well, basically everyone within Israel's borders. Everyone from leaders to little ones. Sojourners and servants. See, Moses alliterated too. Uh, keep all these covenants. But did you notice that an obligation is placed upon those who are not yet members of the covenant community? See verses 14 and 15 unpack this. Verse 14. It is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God, and with whoever is 
not here with us today. Well, what does this tell us? It certainly tells us that God relates to all time, all at one time. He is able to form a covenant with those in different periods of history because He is not bound by time. As one theologian has said, God sees all of time, all the time, at every point in time. This is our infinite and eternal God. But more to the point for those standing there in Moab that day, these verses tell us that God is going to be faithful to continue to multiply Israel's offspring. That offspring, though not physically present that day, will be called to keep the covenant when they do walk upon the land. What does this have to do with any of us? Well, did you note the repetition? Uh, this is not the first time that Moses has covered Israel's history. In this book, Moses has covered Israel's history time and time and time again. Sometimes in short strokes and sometimes in lengthy meditations. It does not trouble Moses to remember God's faithfulness time and time again. What about us? When do we remember our covenant history? Well, I think we remember our covenant history every time we hear the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Every time we see the good news proclaimed in baptism or celebrated in the Lord's Supper, every time we partake of these good gifts, we're reminded of our covenant history. We're reminded of our covenant history every Sunday. Why? Because we need to remember God's faithfulness. We need to remember that He has rescued us from the penalty and power of sin. We need to remember that He walks with us while we wander in this world. We need to remember that He leads us and feeds us. We need to remember that He equips us to bear witness. We need to remember that He empowers us to bear good fruit. His great faithfulness is what encourages us, strengthens us to remain faithful to Him. That's why we remember God's good work in Jesus Christ every Sunday. Israel has been reminded of God's great faithfulness, but they also face a great danger. A danger that is fearfully near them. Spoiler alert, uh, Israel's danger is our danger too. So let's turn now and consider our second point, our great danger. And as we do, follow along as I read Deuteronomy 29. Let's begin in verse 16 and read to verse 20. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. As you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven." After reminding Israel of God's great faithfulness in the past and in the future, he reminds his hearers in verses 16 and 17 of how they have passed through the nations. They've seen their abominable practices and idols. And on that note, 
Moses immediately pivots and says, Beware. Beware what? Beware the idols? No, you'll see there. Beware of your own hearts. Beware of your own unbelief. Beware of your own temptation to turn away from the living God. And look how, how closely, look closely at how Moses puts this in verse 18. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today. This is a clear and present danger. It is a turning away. It hasn't fully happened yet, but the drifting has begun. People don't usually leave the covenant community and worship other gods all at once. It's a slow turn and departure. What about you? Are you disappointed or disaffected with Jesus and His body, the church? Is your heart turning away? Are you finding yourself more inclined and more drawn into the idols of this world? Is Jesus and His body the gravitational pull of your life? Or is it something or someone else? Consider how Moses teases this out in the second half of verse 18. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Now just think about that imagery for a moment. What's, what's the nature of a root? It's underground. It's unseen. Where is this spiritual root located? It says, verse 19 says, in the heart. And the bitter root we see is, is marked by pride. That man thinks to himself, I'm safe. Do you think you're safe? The only safe place is clinging to the Lord Jesus. Desperately to Him. This man thinks to himself, I'm safe. My hidden sins are, are, are no problem. But this one man's bitter unbelief will have a profound impact on the covenant community. God will judge Israel. He will sweep away not just that man, but the whole community. Moist and dry alike. Verse 19. After all, that's who the covenant was made with, remember? Isn't that what we learned in verses 10 to 15? And, and maybe we think to ourselves, this doesn't seem quite right. Why would one man's bitter unbelief be such a problem for the, the whole of Israel? Well, do you remember what we read earlier in the service in Hebrews chapter 12? Remember that passage in the New Testament, and the author is speaking to believers who are not part of the Mosaic Covenant, but part of the New Covenant, part of this new redemptive era in Jesus. Listen again to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness, see he's playing on Deuteronomy, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Do you hear what the writer of the Hebrews is saying? He's using imagery from here, Deuteronomy 29, to call the new covenant people of God to recognize two things. Number one, at least two things. Number one, bitterness in a single believer can spring up, cause trouble, and defile others. The bitterness in your heart can harm others. Bitterness and unbelief can spread like gangrene. Number two, it's the responsibility of the members of the local church to make sure that no one of their fold walks away from Jesus. I mean, listen again to what the writer of Hebrews says to his hearers. Not to the leaders of the local assembly, 
but to the assembly as a whole. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, members of Arlington Baptist Church, it is your responsibility to make sure that your fellow church members do not leave Jesus. You may think that our church covenant is an old and dusty document. You may think that it's quaint uh, that we practice what your great-great-great-great-grandmother's Baptist church practiced when we stand up and we renew our covenant with one another. But here's the thing. Our church covenant embodies and expresses the call of Hebrews 12.15 upon believers in Jesus. So when, when we promise to walk together, together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. And when we promise not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others, we are promising to see to it that no one in our church fails to obtain the grace of God. So, are you living out that call and command? Who are you helping along the way? Who are you discipling and encouraging to cling to God and His grace in Jesus Christ? See, this is why we need to show up early to church, to, to talk and to check in with one another. This is why we need to stay late after church to talk and check in and pray with one another. This is why we need to sing loudly, sing loudly at church. We need to sing these truths into each other's hearts. Uh, this is why we need to say amen at church so that our brothers and sisters hear and know that other people actually believe this stuff too. To encourage one another, to persevere. This is why we need to see each other outside of church to encourage one another to hold fast to Christ and to obtain the grace of God. Now let me ask a question that's just maybe a little bit closer to home. Are you bitter? Are you bitter? I mean, how would you know? In verse 18, Moses says that where there is a root, there is fruit. And what is that fruit? Well, we see in this text, you know that you're bitter if you keep reassuring yourself of God's love and favor when you do not resist and struggle against sin. So, so are you fighting sin? That's what Moses says. Did you know that Paul also speaks of bitterness? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, listen to what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from among you. Now, interestingly enough, Paul, he enumerates this list of sins, right? But did you hear the sin that he started with? He started with an internal sin, with bitterness. And then he worked to identify external sins, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander. And I would not be surprised if Paul meant for bitterness to be the root of wrath and anger and clamor. Those things to be the, the fruit of bitterness. So, are you ever wrathful? Uh, let me put in a word that might uh, make more sense to us these days. Are you ever furious? Um... Are you ever furious? Not just at kind of the drivers in front of you, but maybe those kids standing in front of you or your coworker standing in front of you. Have you ever been angry? Do you ever clamor? And to clamor means to, to shout, to yell. Now, when was the last time you yelled at someone? Paul says that we've got to put that away. We can't yell at our kids. We can't yell at our coworkers. We can't yell at the drivers who can't even hear us anyway. Have you ever slandered someone else? 
Have you spoken poorly of them? Have you painted their actions and words in the best possible light? Or have you thrown shade their way? Why would we do these things? It could be because we're bitter. Uh, We're bitter at God. God hasn't given us what we want or think we deserve. We're bitter at others because they haven't treated us with the esteem that we feel entitled to. Others haven't paid us the attention that we want or met our needs. We're bitter because, to put it bluntly, we haven't been worshipped. When we're bitter, we turn the details of our misfortune over and over in our minds. We replay the conversations and events. Have you ever done that? I've done that. Um, Sometimes we even rewrite the stories and the script, right? Coming up with ideas of what we would have said in the moment. Bitterness springs from unbelief. It springs from dethroning God and placing ourselves on the throne. That's why the man of verse 18 can go and serve other gods. He wasn't really serving the one true God to begin with. That's why his unbelief has such a profound effect upon others in the covenant community. Because it defiled them too and exposed their unbelief. So how do we uproot the root of bitterness in our lives? By bringing our self-worship to an end. Our self-centered orientation in worshiping God and serving others. By turning away from turning inwards to turning outward. Worship God and service of others drinks all of the available water. Thereby killing, I think, self-service and worship. Killing bitterness. See verses 19 to 24. These verses, they depict God responding to Israel's widespread unbelief and unfaithfulness with judgment and wrath. In these verses, Moses reminds Israel of the curses enumerated in the previous chapters of Deuteronomy. He reminds Israel of how God judged past wickedness and sin, and he says, and this will come upon you. You're going to be just like Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding nations who were supposed to praise you. They're now going to explain why you're suffering God's judgment. They're going to know. Why you're suffering God's judgment. So public will this punishment be that the nations will be able to explain the reason for Israel's judgment. They'll be able to say, it's because they were unfaithful to their covenant Lord. That's why God brought His curses upon them. And that's why He removed them from the land. See, these verses in Deuteronomy 29 are a prophetic description of the exile that would come to the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. and the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 B.C. Verses 19 to 24 are picked up by Israel's prophets in the lead up to the exile and they're used as warnings and encouragements to repent of idolatry and to return to covenant faithfulness. And notice how Moses describes the exile in verse 28. The language is arresting. Verse 28, And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. You see the point here? You can uproot bitterness, or you can be uprooted. That's what Moses is saying to the people of Israel. Now, we know that the exile is in Israel's future. We know that because the history of Israel is described in the Bible very plainly for us. But those who were standing there that day listening to Moses, you know, they didn't have the full picture of their future. 
Moses was speaking these words in Deuteronomy 29, verses 16 to 28, and the people of Israel, you know, they must have been thinking, Moses, um, all of this sounds like it's going to happen. Uh, I mean, especially since you told us in verse 4 that the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. It seems like we've got no other route but disobedience. Moses, this, this sounds inevitable. Well, added to these questions, I think we can assume another line of questions was likely stirring. What does this mean for our future as a nation? Does this mean that you will forsake your promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob? Does this mean you will forsake your promises in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to send a son to rescue sinners from eternal death? And so we get Moses' very pastoral and practical reply in verse 29. This is how Moses answers those questions, I think. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. What is Moses saying? He's saying, the Lord knows the future. That is for Him to know. We know God's law, and His law we are to know and do. That is our role in this covenant relationship. Our great danger is to reverse our roles with God, to, to tell Him how the future will go because we're really in charge and we're really on the throne. But no, in this great drama in history, our role in relation to God is to trust Him and obey Him. Our calling is to remember His faithfulness to us and to be faithful to Him. God has kept His promises all throughout Israel's history. And they could trust Him with their future, though it may look dark and depressing. Though God could shatter and scatter His people due to their unbelief, He could also regather them and give them mercy. In fact, that's what Moses turns to announce next. He announces God's great mercy. And this is our third point. God's great mercy. So follow along as I read uh, the first six verses of Deuteronomy chapter 30. And notice uh, kind of some of the timing features uh, timing words we see in these verses. Verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart, with all your soul, then... The Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there He will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. See, the second half of chapter 29 announced future disobedience and destruction. But the first half of chapter 30 announces future mercy and grace. These verses are, of course, referring to a time period even further than that beyond the exile. They're looking forward to a time of restoration after the exile and still yet more. They're looking forward to the time when, when Jesus will take up the mantle of Israel, take up the mantle of Adam, and live the faithful life that God's people have not yet lived. He lives, them, he lives the faithful life for them 
so that all who are united to Him by faith may be restored and reconciled to God. Verses 1 and 2, you see there, they set up the time period of curses having taken place and Israel having repented during the exile, followed by the wonderful word, then. Uh, that word must have been a relief for Moses' hearers. When they heard the word, then I suspect it would have cultivated hope that the curses were not the last word on their future. Remember chapter 29, we're told in verse 4 that Israel did not possess a heart that understood. And take a look at verse 6. One day in the future, God would circumcise hearts. And He would do it so that... It's a purpose clause explaining why God is going to do what He's doing. God would circumcise their hearts so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. It is this circumcision of heart that brings about repentance. And notice the nature of repentance in verse 2. It is return to the Lord your God. See, repentance is first and foremost a return to God. Repentance in the Bible is described as a turning away from sin, but at the same time it is a turning to God. And why would we return to God? Because He's been merciful to work in our hearts, merciful to show us our sin, and merciful to show us His forgiveness offered in Jesus Christ. Repentance is not merely a different outward orientation towards sin. It is first and foremost a different inward orientation toward God, toward love for Him. God promises to circumcise the hearts of His people in verse 6. But surprisingly, He would also circumcise the hearts of their offspring. Why? So that all in the covenant community have circumcised hearts. This is the promise of the new covenant in seed form. In fact, the, pro the prophet Jeremiah tells us that all of the members of the new covenant, from the least to the greatest, from the leaders to the little ones, all the members of the New Covenant will know the Lord. And I want you to see this in your Bibles. So turn in your Bibles. Uh, keep one finger here, but turn in your Bibles to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find uh, the passage on page 660. 660. Now Jeremiah, as you, as you may know, he's often been called the, the weeping prophet. It's called the weeping prophet because it grieved him to deliver God's word of judgment upon Judah. He announced the coming exile, but he also announced a hope and a future for those who cling to God and His promises and faith. And we're reading about those hope-filled future days in Jeremiah chapter 31. Pick up reading in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. I will put my, for this is the covenant uh, I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know the Lord. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You see here, Jeremiah, he tells us that the Lord is going to bring about a new covenant arrangement. In this new covenant, 
all of the members of the covenant will know the Lord. That is, they will have faith in Him. They will trust Him. They will intimately relate to Him. In other words, one of the differences between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant is that the New Covenant community will not be a mixed community of believers and unbelievers as it was in the Old Covenant. What is more, this New Covenant community will delight to do God's law. That is one of the distinguishing marks of a person indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is the needed change that we've been waiting for in redemptive history. This is the change needed to break the pattern of rebelling against God's law that Moses and Jeremiah and Ezekiel were all speaking about. It will now be their heart's desire. And that's just what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 to 14. So turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 to 14. I believe that's on page 172 of the Bibles provided. Moses, in these verses, is still looking forward to the promise of the new covenant in verses 11 to 14. See if you can spot the phrase that gives it away, that this is what Moses has in view. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 to 14. For this commandment that I give you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea, that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it back to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, the phrase that gives it all ways, right there in verse 14. It's just where Jeremiah said God's word would be. It's in your heart. The word is very near you and in your heart. But do you know what really clinches the whole argument that Moses in verses 11 to 14 is talking about the mercy of God in the New Covenant. It's the New Testament. Uh, Paul, the divinely inspired apostle and interpreter of the Old Testament, in Romans chapter 10, verses 6 to 9, tells his readers that Moses was preaching Jesus when he was preaching this passage. Paul quotes Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 14. He's, he's saying that Moses is speaking about the the institution and the inauguration of the new covenant. Moses, uh, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. He says, The word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. And then he says, And that is the word that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth, look at verse 14. See mouth there? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, you see that in verse 14? See mouth and heart? Because if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. But what does this mean for you and me? It means that if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, which is to say, if you have had your heart circumcised, then you are a recipient of the good things that Moses was promising to the people of Israel would happen on the plains of Moab in Deuteronomy 30. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, Paul in Romans 10 and the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 8 all confirm that Jesus has established this new covenant arrangement in His blood. He's poured out His Holy Spirit upon His people by circumcising their hearts. Remember, remember what happened on the day of Pentecost? Do you remember that nations were gathered to Jerusalem? That the Spirit was poured out? They were gathered from the four corners of the earth? and brought into the new covenant community of faith? This is God's great mercy to you. 
to give you a new heart. It is God's great mercy to give you a new heart that longs to return to the Lord, to repent and be restored to a full relationship with Him. It is the great mercy of the Lord to gather you in from the scattered nations of the earth. It is the great mercy of the Lord to give you the kind of love for the Lord Jesus that fills all of your heart and soul. It is the great mercy of God to give you the promised land of heaven. But what practical impact should that have in your life? Well, what does Moses say there at the end of verse 14? Moses tells us how to apply this passage. He says, if the word is near you, if it's so very near you that it's in your mouth and heart, then do it. And we know that James was, he was channeling Jesus, uh, but you also kind of have to wonder if James was channeling Moses when he said, be doers of the word and not hearers only in James chapter 1 verse 23. Brothers and sisters, with, a, with the help of the Spirit in our hearts, this is our calling to do God's word. The only question is, will we? What choice will we make? And let's turn now and consider our, our final point, our great choice. And as we do, follow along as I read Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 to 20. Verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today. By loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice and holding fast to Him. For He is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. See, in verse 15, I think Moses, we see he, can take, he takes his gaze off that distant horizon of the new covenant and exile. And he jars his hearers back into thinking about the choice that is present before them by two little words. Today and you. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. And he again uses that word today in, in verse 16 and 18 and 19. And the people of Israel, they can't live in the future. They've got to live in the present. You, you can't live in the future. You've got to live in the present. In the present, the people of Israel, they have a choice to make. It is the choice between life and death, curse and blessing. And they will show what choice they have made through obedience or disobedience. Now, in, in verse 19, Moses, as it were, brings the people of Israel before the judgment throne of God. He calls heaven and earth to stand as witnesses while he places Israel under oath. But before he does it, he reiterates the goodness and great faithfulness of God in verse 16. He reminds Israel that the promised land is before them, that God has been faithful to His promises to Abraham, and He's been faithful to His covenant. Now you ought to be faithful to Him. As a dying man, because remember, Moses, he's not going to go over into the promised land. 
As a dying man, he says to the children that he's led these 40 years, he says, choose life. Love God. Obey His voice. Hold fast to Him. Notice how relational these exhortations are. God is the source of all our good. So bind yourself to Him. He is your life. Your obedience is not your life. He is your life. Which means if you don't have Him, you're dead. He's your life. Hold on to Him and live. Friends, brothers and sisters, this is our great choice today and every day. Will we love and serve God? Or will we love and serve the gods of this world? Now remember something about these two chapters as we think about this choice. Before setting this choice before the people of Israel, Moses has set before them the mercy of God. Do you know who else did that? That's precisely what the Apostle Paul did in the book of Romans. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. That's on page, uh, the bottom of page 947 in the Bibles provided. In the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul set before his readers the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And then he makes an appeal, just like Moses made an appeal to Israel to choose life. Romans chapter 12, let me just read verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, or in view of the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Brothers and sisters, let us hear the apostles appeal. Let us hear Moses appeal. And let us choose life. And let's make this choice with the mercy of God before us. God Himself took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus kept the entire law of God. He kept the whole commandment so that we can come to possess the promised land of heaven. Jesus loved God the Father. He served Him with all of His heart and soul and mind and strength. He chose obedience every step of the way. Jesus was without sin. And still He died on the cross for sinners like you and me. Because of our disobedience, we deserve to have the eternal anger of God kindled against us. We deserve to bear the curses spoken of in Deuteronomy 25. We deserve to have our names blotted out from under heaven. Deuteronomy 29, 20. We deserve to be eternally punished, to eternally perish because of our sin and disobedience. But Jesus, in His death on the cross, took the punishment that our sins deserve. It is because Jesus received our curse that we can receive God's blessing. Three days after His death on the cross, Jesus was raised from the grave, proving to us all that He secured eternal life in the promised land of heaven. And He is even now seated at the right hand of God the Father on high. We too have a choice today. A choice between life and death. Either 
we can personally bear the curse of God for our sin and disobedience, or we can turn from our sin, trust in Jesus, and receive the mercy of God and blessing of eternal life. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I want to invite you today to choose life. Today, life and death have been set before you. You choose life by confessing that you've been disobedient. That like Adam and Israel and everyone else in this world, you have not kept God's law. And that you are worthy of God's curse and death. You choose life not only by confessing that you are a sinner and a rebel against God, but also by confessing that your only hope is Jesus Christ. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So look to Jesus in faith and live. And if you want to know more about what it means to receive God's blessings through Jesus Christ, to trust in Jesus alone for your salvation, please come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member or church member that you know here. We'd love to talk to you about this good news in Jesus Christ, that we have life through Him. We should conclude... In Deuteronomy 29 and 30, we have been freshly reminded of God's great faithfulness, of our great danger, God's great mercy, and our great choice. And if there's one thing that we should remember when faced with this choice between life and death, between obedience and disobedience, it's this. We do not make this choice in a vacuum. No, today, we make this choice in view of God's mercy. We, we make this choice in view of how God has displayed and demonstrated His love for sinners in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Hear again Moses' final words from Deuteronomy 30. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him. For He is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. This choice is not impersonal. It's a personal choice. Did you hear all the yous that Moses used? This choice is from the heart. It's a choice to love the Lord Jesus. Moses, he didn't stay neutral. He didn't say, you know, I'm going to leave this decision uh, up to you, entirely up to you. What, you know, whatever you want to do is fine. No, he loved the people that he had shepherded for more than 40 years. He loved them more than that. He urged them. He pled with Israel to choose life. And so I plead with you, choose Jesus. Choose life. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.